is more than the policeman on the corner, more than the courthouse where our laws are enforced, more than the jail where lawbreakers are punished. In your whole community, there are customs and moral codes which guide your actions. What social controls affect you? So now we have this bizarre, weird, secret power. Trial judge doesn't have to tell you about it, then I sure can. The risk is uh, people get away with murder. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. In the U.S., it's a civic duty. Anyone charged with a crime who can be punished with more than six months in jail or prison has the constitutional right to a trial by a jury of their peers. That's you and me. In the 1970s, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled it's up to each state to decide whether to have six or 12 jurors on a trial, and only two states, Georgia and Louisiana, allow anything less than a unanimous decision to convict someone in a criminal case. Even with the Constitution guaranteeing a jury trial, There's been a big drop in the number of civil trials going to a jury, with fewer today than 40 years ago. And maybe that has something to do with the tremendous power juries have to decide more than guilt or innocence. Shannon Heffernan has the story. Paul Butler grew up in a black neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. He was a smart, talented kid and ended up going to Harvard Law School. When he graduated, he wanted to do something for communities like the one he grew up in. Black communities were besieged by crime. So he became a prosecutor. So I thought, I'm going to go in as this undercover brother, and I'm going to make a difference from the inside. But as a prosecutor, Butler had to put a lot of people behind bars. And it turned out that I was kind of good at that. (laughs) You know, I was like this, you know, this clean-cut black guy. And most of the jurors in D.C. were black. And they would just beam at me when I said, my name is Paul Butler. I represent the government. They'd almost do whatever I wanted. Almost. Except when it came to petty drug cases. Even when it was very clear someone was guilty, juries came back with an innocent verdict. Butler was confused. Why would they let someone they knew was guilty of a drug charge go free? Then, one day, he's prosecuting one of these cases. And the defense was something like, well, yeah, the police caught me with the drugs, but they weren't mine. And yeah, I was like, uh, okay. Um, you know, for the law, it actually doesn't matter. If the drugs are on you, it's what's called a strict liability crime. So you're guilty. So the judge told that to the jurors. Jury went out, they deliberated, and they came back with the big fat not guilty. I was like, oh my God, what's up? So I was right out there um, outside the jury, the room where they come out, and none of the black jurors would talk to me. And the white woman stopped for a moment. And I said, what happened? And she said, we all knew he was guilty, but he's so young. Even if the jurors thought the boy was too young, the law was still the law. Butler asked the more experienced prosecutors what was going on. It turned out it had a name, jury nullification. When a jury nullifies, it finds a defendant innocent, although the jurors may actually believe he's guilty. And because it's illegal to retry someone, the person goes free. The prosecutors Butler talked to hated it. They thought it weakened the legal system. 
But nullification has played a big role in American history. Jurors used it all the way back during the Revolutionary War to free Americans who spoke out against the British, and during Prohibition to keep bootleggers out of jail. Most famously, it was used during slavery. Imagine you were a juror in 1850, and it was against the law to help a slave run away. And so jurors would often say, not guilty, even though these folks were 100% guilty. By the way, those jurors also helped uh, create the conditions that led to the abolition of slavery. And I ask folks now, well, what would you do? It seems like an easy answer. Slavery is wrong. But jury nullification has a dark side, too. I don't think anyone could really advocate for a system where the juries can do whatever they want to do. Jeff Kramer is the managing director of Kroll Investigations and has tried at least 100 jury trials. Kramer says juries have used nullification to do things we look back on as being right, but they've also used nullification to do things that were really wrong. Baller was so badly damaged that we couldn't hardly just tell who he was, but he happened to have on a ring with his initials. In August of 1955, two white men killed Emmett Till, a black 14-year-old who they said whistled at a white woman. We never have any trouble until some of our southern niggas go up north and the NAACP talks to them and they come back home. I'd like for the NAACP to know that we are here giving all parties a fair and impartial trial. The trial was not fair. The evidence was clear. Later, the two white defendants would even admit to the murder. But the all-white jury found the white defendants innocent. That was nullification, too. Again, Jeff Kramer. The risk is uh, people get away with murder. And they get away with murder because uh, the jury in those cases uh, regarded the defendants as more valuable than the victims. So if we allowed jury nullification, system's over. It doesn't work. It's broken. There is nobody who will tell you that the jurors are anything but serious and impressed with the magnitude of the task that they've been given. Sherry Diamond is a professor at Northwestern Law School. Jury deliberation is usually very private, but Diamond received rare permission to study them in action. Her conclusion? Nullification doesn't happen often. The jurors will say, boy, I sure don't agree with that law, but we have no choice. Of course, juries are a cross-section of society with all its flaws. But Diamond says you have to remember that in order to be on a jury, you have to first get through the selection process. That weeds out people with biases, people who might nullify. So the jury is us, but perhaps a better us. That better us will nullify in rare circumstances usually when our accepted morals don't match the letter of the law. One way of saying it is that this is a kind of safety valve for the system. And uh, we, we tolerate it. And there are, in fact, uh, court opinions that say specifically that the jury has no right to do it. But of course, we structurally build a system in which the jury has the power to do it. Jury nullification dates all the way back to common law. It was designed as a check and balance on the government's power. Paul Butler, the prosecutor who was having trouble getting guilty verdicts, thinks it may be the most direct form of democracy we have, 
12 people in a room charged with coming to a single conclusion. He left the prosecutor's office and became a professor at George Washington University. He now believes those jurors who nullified in all those drug cases were on to something. There are more blacks who are under criminal justice supervision now than there were slaves in 1850. Butler thinks drug laws are to blame for those high incarceration numbers. Statistically, there are less black drug users, but more blacks in prison for drugs. So just like jurors nullified the fugitive slave laws, Butler thinks modern jurors should nullify drug laws. Sometimes the law really is unfair, and sometimes jurors really should say that people are not guilty, even if they committed the crime, especially if it's a drug case, because the drug laws are selectively enforced, and I don't think it's fair. Now, despite the role nullification can play, chances are you haven't heard of it, and there's a reason for that. Most people in the legal system think juries shouldn't nullify. It's too dangerous. Still, they can't take away jurors' ability to nullify without taking away other basic rights enshrined in the Constitution. But there are three ways the legal system tries to discourage nullification. First, as a juror, you take an oath. Do each of you solemnly swear that you will render a true verdict according to the law and the evidence so help you God? Second, defense lawyers cannot tell jurors to nullify. They can only raise doubts that their client didn't commit the crime. Members of the jury, these are the facts. And I am confident today you will see this case is full of reasonable doubts. Third, most judges basically tell you not to nullify. It is your responsibility to decide what the facts of this case may be and to apply the law to those facts. So, juries may be able to nullify, but the system is set up to hide that. So now we have this bizarre, weird, secret power that one of my functions is, if the trial judge doesn't have to tell you about it, then I sure can. Butler tries to spread the word about nullification through speaking and writing. Another activist takes a more direct approach. Oh, I'm uh, Julian Heiklin. And I am the biggest pain in the ass in the world. Heiklin is a member of the Fully Informed Jury Association. Their goal is to make sure jurors know they can nullify. Heiklin stands outside courtrooms, handing out literature and talking to people. He thinks nullification is a good strategy for all kinds of laws he sees as being unfair, including gun laws. In August of 2011, the U.S. government charged Heiklin with jury tampering, a serious offense. The case got a lot of attention especially when the judge denied Heiklin a jury trial. After all, it would be just another opportunity for him to tell jurors how to nullify. But if the courts want to keep this jury nullification thing on the down low, then Heiklin says the joke has been on them. So, th- so they've made a national issue out of this. They've done something that I could have never done by myself. This is all over the country. All of a sudden, I've become a major public figure and... I'm just a shabby old man with a few ridiculous pamphlets. They're handing out the biggest pamphlet ever. Of course, they're handing out the biggest pamphlet ever. Since I spoke with Heiklin, the case has been dropped. He plans to be outside courtrooms again soon, for better or worse, making the secret power of nullification a little less secret.
This podcast was edited by Julia Barton with sound direction and production by Caitlin Prest. Life of the Law is produced by Mary Adkins, Julia Barton, Katie Barnett, Shannon Heffernan, Caitlin Prest, Elisa Roth, Simone Seaver, and Phil Wilt. Our music is by Matthew Darr, Kyle Kaplan, and Todd McDonald. Our funding comes from you, our listeners, and from the Open Society Foundations, with special thanks to Thomas Hilbink. Thanks also to the International Media Project, our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. If you'd like to make an individual donation to Life of the Law or are considering becoming a sponsor of our podcast, visit lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Nancy Mullane. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvador and pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.